feel really bad. You guys are all in the Christmas spirit. Now I'm going to preach on bodily fluids. I didn't get the memo. Leviticus 15. <laughs> really looking forward to Friday night. I think there's only about nine tickets left. Uh, um, Steve um, Kreloff is a lot of fun. He, he is a very dear friend, and uh, um, he's a real blessing. You're going to really enjoy him, and uh, I hope you have your tickets for that. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son. Hmm. He didn't come to die immediately, but he did come to die. He came to be incarnate. To be fully man so he could experience everything we experience but without sin. There was no other way, Lord. We needed a representative. We need one that was us and one that was you. All in the same person. There was no other hope, Lord. All of these things we study in Leviticus were going to damn each and every person to hell. They could only be temporarily cleansed. They had no hope, Lord. Their hope was that you promised that you would crush the head of the serpent. And there would be a seed that would come and that seed would be a deliverer. And so Lord, as we're reminded of some pretty ugly things today in our text, help us see the gravity of sin and the glory of Christ. I think that's when we worship most, Lord. When we see how big a debt had to be paid. How grotesque sin is to a holy God. And how glorious a Savior who could overcome that on our behalf. So Lord, I know we're in a difficult passage tonight. But I pray you would help us see your glory. And help us see how great you are to overcome the grotesqueness of sin. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is walking through some fields in Mark chapter 7, and he, him and his disciples pick some grain, and there Pharisees seem to be following around looking for anything to indict him. They begin to accuse him of breaking their, their laws, their traditions. And after he rebukes them, he turns to disciples in Mark chapter 7, 18 and following. He says, do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach and is eliminated. And thus he was declaring all foods clean, and that's before the cross. Isn't that interesting? He went on to say, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. What comes out of them. Today we're going to see things that come out in all kinds of places. Because God's going to show how grotesque our sin is. He says, he went on to say, for within, from within, out of the heart of men proceeds evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, 
deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And I'm telling you, our text is going to describe that in some bodily fluids in a way. God wants man to see how grotesque sin is, and there's only one who can cleanse them. See, nothing's hidden from God, right? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, There is no creature, nada, no creature hidden from his sight. But all things that have to do with those creatures, right, are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do with. One author said, God has spiritually filleted us and sees the deepest inner parts of us. Well, there's no greater passage to show uh, the graphic, graphicness of this truth of how ugly and even grotesque sin can be than Leviticus 15. It's been my habit in some of these longer passages just to take on the first couple of verses and then summarize groups of verses. I want to do that again because it's so difficult to get through entire chapters. So I want to give you six or seven. I don't remember what I have, but we'll move through these fairly rapidly as we look at this and try to understand that, that God sees what no one else sees. Up to this point, Leviticus, all of the disease and in, in, in relationship to sin has all been outward up to this point, particularly just getting down with leprosy. If you were a leper, you couldn't hide that. Not very long. Now he's going to talk about sins that nobody knows but you. (laughs) See, that's what he's getting to now. And this is where Leviticus 15, if you've always wondered and read through this and kind of tried to skip through it because it is a little bit grotesque, I believe God wants them, the nation of Israel, to understand the grotesqueness of sin. First thought, the The disgusting and hidden nature of our sin cannot be hidden from God. We'll see this as we look at the first three verses to kind of set the tone for the rest of this. Look with me just to the first three verses. The Lord also spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is is unclean. This, moreover, shall be his uncleanness in his discharge. It is his uncleanness, whether his body allows its discharge to flow or whether his body obstructs its discharge. Well, first off, you see that Aaron is brought back into the instruction again here. And when it's just the law, it seems that God speaks to Moses when it's just pure law. But here now, when law and disease is brought in, Aaron is brought into the discussion and he hears the voice of God. Both of these men have an important role. Moses is the mediator. Aaron is the high priest. All of these are are types, not perfect, but types of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're both brought into this very, very detailed discussion on bodily fluids. This first section deals with what some call abnormal male discharges here. And the exact nature of the discharge is not stated in God's word here, but many commentators suggest that some kind of possibly sexually transmitted disease, maybe something like gonorrhea. 
Others think it's some kind of urinary, urinary tract infection of some sort that could be found both in males and females. But the, bas- the passage begins with, with bodily discharges of a man. And that there could be some kind of sort of blockage there. And this infection, God's word says, deems them unclean. Now the more I study on this, um, the more I look back into the history of the nation of Israel the more you see that though this was given for them to understand their sin and how they can only be pure if they come God's way, there's also great health benefits to so much of what we study. During so many different pandemics and different times that the world was struck with different things, the Jews often missed a lot of that because God gave them health standards that many other nations didn't keep. And so there is great benefits to some of these things as well for their health. However, the status of, of being unclean in Leviticus 15 is, does not completely take the unclean one out of the community like it did with leprosy. Instead, there's restrictions to them. As you study this passage and look at it, there, there's restrictions to ceremonial purification. They're not allowed to go to ceremonial things until this infection is gone. And unlike the previous chapter where the, the leper is, is to go to the priest for inspection, <laughs> this was very interesting. There's no inspection here, thank the Lord. That would have been a tough job. In fact, there's a secret uncleanness that was only known to the person. No one else would know this. See, with a the leper, there was no way to hide But with these infections, they represented in a way the secret sin that oozed out of the heart. And God wanted to talk about this. Out of all the things, I thought, Lord, there's so many things that go on with our human body. Why this? Why do I have to teach it? But I think the main thought here is that that with the leper, it was obvious what he had. And you would have to say unclean, but with this, if you chose to hide this, no one would know except God. And you would not have to cry out unclean. Well, this difficult chapter has to represent something greater. And I think it represents a disgusting, though a disgusting image of how God sees our secret sin. I don't know else how you would compare it. I read many, many men on it and all think alike on this. Many of the issues in this chapter, you know, normal moral people don't openly discuss this stuff, which is good. But nevertheless, God, God in his infinite wisdom uses these private matters to expose secret sin that makes an individual unclean. See, he knew it would be very easy to say, well, see, look at those lepers, they're unclean. You can obviously see they're unclean. God wanted mankind to realize that their uncleanness came from within them. It was up to the individual to do something about this. No one would call them out. Only they knew they were unclean. And in a sense, what the somewhat disgusting nature of the passage 
helps us grasp what I keep calling is the disgusting nature of secret sin. Secret sin is disgusting to God. And most of us often allow it to stay resident within us for a long time. For the Israelite, God wanted them to realize that he saw everything. He saw everything. There was nothing hidden from him. And God desired them to know this truth. He wants them to deal with this. He wants them to be his people. He wants them to come to him the right way. He wants them to desire to be right with him. He wants them to see the depth of their sin and the glory of God and have a relationship with him. And he desires them to react and come his way in order to be cleansed and be right with him. In other words, God cared. He cares just as much about hidden things or hidden sins in our life than he does the obvious ones. In fact, I would say he cares more about this because this is the result of so many outward things. We know if we don't deal with internal problems in our body, our outward body, will catch, it'll catch up with us. Second thought, the disgusting and hidden nature of sin is to spread. Now, you have your Bibles there, and I'm not going to read as I normally do, but I want you to just be skimming down through here as I teach through this a little bit. The key truth in this next set of verses here reminds us that sin will pollute everything it can get around. See, sin, it'll ruin everything. It'll ruin inanimate objects. We see bedding and clothing and saddles and pots all in this text right here, verses 4 through 12, that have to be dealt with, that have to be cleansed, and some have to be destroyed. Sin just jumps on things. And it's such a lesson of why we want to deal with things, why we don't want to wait years and years to deal with problems, because such destruction comes from sin, because that's sin's goal. It just destroys it. The psalmist in Psalms 1, you know this great psalm, said, How blessed is the man who does not walk after the counsel of wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit Sit in the seat of scoffers. And here, you can't sit where someone was unclean because if you sat there and someone sat behind you, they too were unclean. It spreads. And maybe, maybe this writer of Psalms 1 was thinking of this law. But instead, his delight was in the law of the Lord. He wanted to meditate it day and night so that he didn't give in to sin that so easily spreads. See, verses 4 through 6 show this, the ease of this transmittable state of not, not the disease, but the uncleanness. It's not tracking some disease that, like a COVID or something else that can be passed from person to person here. It's tracking uncleanness is what it's tracking. And you can see that it's far more deadly than any COVID or anything else. And if we do not handle the biblical truth of God's word tells us of how to handle sin. If we don't handle that correctly, we will infect people around us. You can see that. It's, don't do this. If you sit on this, this has to be clean. If you do this, if you touch that, don't touch this person. Don't sleep with this person. I mean, he's giving all these very clear instructions in this passage because sin is infectious. And sin is not content with just having one victim. Happens in marriages all the time, doesn't it? Someone won't repent and it can affect the spouse and 
and it can affect that relationship, and then it can affect the children, and then it can affect the church because it affects their church attendance, and then it affects their relatives and their neighbors and coworkers. And so many things can happen when sin is not repented of. And you can see the Lord is showing the graphicness of this very clear, uh, disgusting nature of, the, of this bodily fluids, using it to show how quickly everything around it can become unclean. Another important note is that this state of being unclean was limited only to the evening, which is much different than leprosy. Under the law here, we still see a time where they are unclean. Now, it's only for that, toward that evening in most cases if you touch someone or sit on their bed or ride in their saddle or whatever that may be. It's only toward evening. But what I got thinking about here is under the law, you never find immediate pardon. Isn't that interesting? Yes, you could, be in, you could be clean again that evening. And if it was you that had the discharge problem, we know, as we'll see here in a minute, that you could go to the tabernacle, you could offer the turtle doves, and you could again be deemed clean and, and right with God and so forth temporarily, but you could have that. But I thought, what a joy there is that we experience immediate pardon from not just that, that one secret sin, but all sins when we come to God through Jesus Christ alone. You are pardoned now. I think one of the biggest things Christians deal with sometimes is they, they struggle with guilt. I was talking to somebody this week, and I said, they said, I feel guilty over this. I said, guilt should not be a part of a Christian's life. Christ died for our guilt. If we handle his atoning work right and receive it as it was given to us, we don't live in guilt. If you want to stay in unconfessed sin and lie about your sin and blame it on everybody else, oh yeah, you're going to fall under tremendous guilt. But what joy to realize at the moment we received Jesus Christ, he pardoned us from all our sin. It didn't have to wait till that night or seven days later or whatever. It was it 10 days with a leper. I find great comfort in that. I mean, think about what happens at salvation. Immediately we pass from hell to heaven, in a sense. Hell loses a victim. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We, we go from Satan's family to God's family. And people don't like to hear that because there's only two families on earth. Right? Is there a third one I don't know about? I haven't found it in the Bible. A lot of people think there is. You're either with Satan or you're with God. And God takes us from Satan's family, makes us his. You go from the depths of depravity and all the despicable nature of sin that this chapter really graphically describes to this glorious peace in a love uh, with a personal relationship with God through his perfect son. What an amazing thing. But see, remember the law was just a shadow of things to come. Hebrews 1 says, For the law, since it was only a shadow of good things to come, now listen to this, and not the very form of things. See, that's why it was not till evening. It wasn't, you couldn't be clean for seven days. You couldn't be clean for ten days. It's not the real thing. It's picturing something. It's, it's pointing forward to something greater. Oh, you and I are pardoned from our sins, brothers and sisters. We should live like free people. Pardoned people. 
who don't go back to disgusting things. See, under the law, the uncleanness took time to be removed. For leprosy, it was lots of inspections. For this, here, it was at least the rest of the day. It was bathing and cleaning and washing clothes. Even in Jesus' earthly ministry, all it took was a touch from him. That's astounding, isn't it? All it took was a touch from Jesus. There was no seven-day period. (laughs) There was no ten days. There was no evening. As soon as Jesus touched people, they were free of uncleanness. So at the moment of salvation, think about this. This holy stream of spiritual healing flows from Christ and is immediately applied to our sinful, diseased state, and we receive healing for eternity. I'm talking spiritually, right? It's an amazing thing. But here, the law is exposing this sinful state of man. And whether he rides in from work, his saddle's now polluted, or whether he lies on his bed, his bed's now polluted, and whether he touches a pot or a garment, all things are polluted because of this inward fountain of sin that continually flows. And this holy one of Israel, speaking to his nation, sees every hidden thing clearly, and he marks man as a sinner. And the law was set up for a temporary offering to hold off. And if we go a little farther in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus, when he comes into the world, he says to his father, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, don't we? Because finally, the one can come that, that now can cleanse me now, pardon me now, and not temporarily, but he can pardon me forever. Goes on to say, in whole offering, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices and sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scrolls of the books. It is written about me to do your will. That's why we study the Old Testament and see Jesus all through it. He said, behold, I've come to do your will. I've come to take away the first and establish the second. Man, I find great hope in that. It's, it, when you just read Leviticus and you don't have a crystal-centric understanding of this, you just realize, wow, this was a tough life. This is a tough life. Third thought, there must be atonement for the true cleansing and purity versus 13 through 15 here, you'll see in the text. Just glance at those as I begin to explain them. Now we come to what is the conclusion of this abnormal discharge this man is having. Now they can be ceremonial clean again, and after this period of seven days... Just those who touched garments or something, they would be unclean till the evening. But the one that had this abnormal discharge here, because we're going to talk about a normal discharge here in a moment, but had this abnormal one. There was a period of seven days with, without any further unclean discharge. He was now ceremonial clean. And then there's a small offering that's brought to the priest of the tabernacle, and it was offered as a sin offering or burnt offering for his cleansing. And it's interesting, it's so different. There's no lambs or bulls. Um, 
There's no male lambs or female lambs. None of that's here. It is a simple poor man's offering of turtle doves and pigeons that are made. Whether he's poor or wealthy, he brings the same. And though this is temporary offering, it is interesting that turtle doves and pigeons throughout the Old Testament were a sign of purity. And even today, we still release white doves at weddings and and all kinds of places to show purity and honor. So he connected that. And if it's possible, and it is possible that, that God chose this requirement to speak to the personal purity that God had granted them through this. So when they get done with a seven-day period, they can have confidence temporarily because the law couldn't, couldn't maintain this, right? It had to be done over and over again. But they could, have, they could know they were pure for a momentary time before God and that God could look at their inwardness and see that they were pure again. See, you think about this and you think, well, man, did you have to go through all this? Well, if you were a godly Israelite and you really loved the God of Israel and you really believed he rescued you out of slavery, out of Egypt and brought you, you would desire these things. You desired to be right with God. And I think these are the saints we'll see in heaven someday. They were godly Old Testament saints and they, they would say like David did when David's great repentance came, Psalm 51, 6, behold, you desire truth in the innermost part. Remember that? He's talking about scrub you with hyssop and all of that stuff. But then he says, you desire, you desire truth in the innermost parts. See, David began to understand that God was not so concerned with the outside. He knew the inside was the problem. And so David said, in the hidden parts, you will make known your wisdom. See, when godly Old Testament saints understood this, they desired to be right with God internally. The New Testament says it like this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Inward, outward, he's faithful to do those things. Fourth, we come to the purity and perfection in the house of God, verses 16 through 18. And in this passage, we hit a more of a normal discharge of a male. It has to do with his semen and regular relationship with his wife. But even in this, he is told to bathe himself and in order to be considered clean by evening. You'll notice that. And the fact that even normal and permitted sexual activity made a man ceremonially unclean does not mean God was condemning sex. If you've read some of the different groups down through Christendom, even some of the Puritans fell into a poor understanding of this. Because of passages like this and a poor understanding of the gospel, they connected sexual activity between a husband and wife as even not something God would be pleased with, but it was to only bring procreation onto the earth. And it was all part of the fall. But I don't think that's true at all. Here's what I think God was doing. This is normal relationship between a man and his wife, and there they would be unclean till that evening. But this was God's way of preventing any sexual activity to be combined with spiritual worship. He wanted to separate our intimate lives with our spouses from worship in his temple. 
And there's a really strong reason for that. The pagan world around them that surrounded these nations, both Old Testament and New Testament, because we see it in, in, in Corinth as well, they practiced sexual sin in their sacred places to try to please their God with their immoral acts. God did not want that part of worship. It's an amazing thing. I had to read a little bit on this, as disgusting as it was. But many of the nations right around Israel believed that doing sexual immoral acts in the temple would bring rain and good crops. Godless, pagan stuff. And, and so in this moment where God gives sexual relationship to a healthy marriage and deems that good and enjoyable and pleasing and even in a way worshipful to God because it's done out of obedience. He does not want that part of a worship in tabernacle or temple. Now, under the law here in Leviticus 15, normal sexual activity was not to be associated with the ministry of the temple, the tabernacle. So God separated his people from the pagan nations and he's separating this one spiritual act from another. And I say that because God created sex. Sex is good. God gave it to a man and wife. He gave it to them as a gift to them. And, and sex is still spiritual for people who love God and love their spouse. It's still handled the same way. You serve one another. Many times in our premarital counseling as we work through this, we teach the young couples, you, you serve each other from the bedroom to the kitchen. You serve one another. So this is not, and unfortunately some of the Puritans and others really got this wrong. And probably frustrated, most likely the men, in many ways. But this was a problem in the New Testament. Look, we've looked at Corinth, right? And, and, and even believers will consider their... Sometimes a believer can get lost in understanding that even the sexual life and the practices of their own private business is outside of God. God is part of this. God watches us. He sees all things that we do. One of the great things about the repentance of David is he says, you watched me sin. Man, that's... I mean, we know what that sin was, don't we? Read that text. He says, you watched me. So sex handled for the glory of God is, is, is what God designed, but he does not want it part of the way the world, the, the pagan world brought it into religious worship. I mean, we're deep into, into Corinthians, aren't we? And you get into the articles of Delphi that were right there in Corinth that had polluted that, that city and many of the believers with a very horrible view of sex and immorality. And so he's dealing with that. No homosexual, no effeminate, you know, no immoral person will inherit the kingdom of God. He's trying to show them, you can't have this life over here and connect it to worship with me. This pagan way of doing it. And so I think when you see this, and a lot of people stumble over these verses because they say, well, man, they're just having normal relations with husband and wife and they're deemed unclean because he doesn't want that brought into the temple. Do not associate that with worship of me like the pagans do. F.B. Meyer said this, we must bring the thought of God into the simplest, the commonest, the most secret acts. Nothing is outside of his jurisdiction. Though hid from our sight, 
yet he is ever near the child of God. His grace, his blood, his cleansing are always necessary and ever ready. And, and C.J. Mahaney wrote a real good little book. I, if you struggle with some of these things, it's called... Oh, man. Um, Sex, Marriage, and the Glory of God, I think. Very, very well-written little book. And it reminds you that God blessed bless Christians with the right view of sex and how to honor each other and honor God even in that relationship. And yet God was protecting the nation of Israel to not be like the pagan, wicked nations around them. 2 Corinthians 7 says this, after it says that God is our Father, He protects us, pulls us out of the world. He says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We should be, by the grace of God, daily striving to be be perfect. The Bible says, be holy because God is holy. So there's there's a positional holiness that we have in Christ, but then there's a practical holiness that the positional holiness pushes us towards. Does that make sense? You follow me? Five. The often difficult but common nature of hidden sin, verses 19 through 24. Here we get into the same law but applied to case, the case of a woman. And this one I really like to go through fast. When you look at this section as you read along here, 19 through 24 here, You see it deals with a normal flow of blood during a woman's cycle, right? And yet she's deemed ceremonially unclean during this time. And notice not only was she considered unclean, but everything she came in contact with to be considered unclean. I mean, literally everything. Children, husbands, beds, pots, anything. And then after that, she had to be set apart for seven days. You'll notice that in the text. And most likely this gave time for the completion of her blood flow. However, under this old covenant, she would have often been looked down on by the self-righteous. Again, it's a secret sin, but it wouldn't take long. Women know stuff, right? I don't know how they know it, but they know things. And this wouldn't have been a time of suffering in this ancient world. I'm very thankful for my gender. (laughs) Not only feeling ill, think about these gals in the ancient world and often hurting. Some gals hurt more than others during these times. She's often separated from general society, kind of like a leopard. She's a little different than the man in this text. She, she could create a, a fear with people if they knew that she was in this time of a month, particularly with men, and that would result on looking down on women if they didn't have a clear view of God and their own wicked sin, which tended to happen. And everything she touched was defiled, everyone she touched, even the physicians that would call on them, they would suffer distress of being unclean till evening as they tried to treat them. Her husband, often it says, and as I studied this, would just separate from her for this time. Now, the law was 
making her blood flow really, here as you study this, an awful picture of the truth of sin. And again, it's, it's something that is hidden. You, you, you don't know when a woman's going through this. It's hidden. And so no matter how hidden this was from men or women or anybody else, her sin set her apart often in misery and sadness. In fact, when we get to chapter 20, if she mishandles and does not handle her uncleanness right, she could be put to death. we see that later in chapter 20. Now, certainly the ramifications from the woman's role is, is part of this from the fall, right? We, we understand the gravity of her decision. Um, Adam is none less guilty. In fact, the Bible always puts the full guilt on Adam, but we see the consequences of her sin, and certainly that's in play here. But the overarching principle is that no matter how hidden our sinful impurities are, they're never hidden from God. But God's gracious. Some authors I read on this said, well, at least for a short time, the law provided a woman a break from everybody. (laughs) No one wanted to touch you. You couldn't be near anybody. You couldn't wash dishes, so you had to break them all. And so you had, a, you had an ease on housework. In fact, the husband often had to pick up his duties because a wife couldn't touch a dish because it would be broken. Certain marital responsibilities were set aside. And even her children would get a break from her. Psalms 130 verse 3 says this, If you, Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? See, you look at this passage and it's so graphic. And God's saying, I want you to see how graphic sin is. And if I'm to call you to account for all of your sin, no one stands is what the author in Psalms 130 says. And though this brought great hardship and certainly there was a little grace for a time for this woman to heal up and be separated from somebody This was meant to show the depth of inward sin. The next section is one that I've been looking forward to teaching on, not because of what's going on here, but we get to go to Jesus here. Number six is a God-given faith that overcomes deadly internal sin. Notice in verse 25 through 30, in these verses we see the law considers an unusual or abnormal bodily, bodily discharges from a woman here. The idea kind of helps you see that there's almost a scourge here. There's, uh, there's probably things going on in women in this time that they would not have been able to solve. You know, no, no understanding of a cyst on an ovary or many of the other things that women suffer from. And yet they would continue to bleed over and over in long times. And they're, now they're getting to where they're never around family. And it's almost getting like a leper type of situation. This was a very, very difficult thing. But the Bible gives instruction to this. And so this woman now, you see this, she's constantly treated as unclean. And this may last for years, as we'll see here in a moment. And the law is impressing upon the nation of inward of this inward shame that would never go away if it wasn't for God. And I think it wants us to understand this dreadfulness of the nature of sin. And though mankind cannot see internally the sin that lies within in a person, 
it really is shameful and destructive of what we can come up with in our hearts. There's no greater example of this than the woman in Mark chapter 5. I want you to turn there. We'll finish out here. Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we find a woman that is the perfect description of this last woman we see in Leviticus 15. She has an abnormal flow. She is not well. Something is internally wrong with her. And I want to just read the account and then give you some thoughts to think about. And I hope you come away worshiping the Lord Jesus like I did today. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hand of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather grown worse. And after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she had thought, if I just touch his garment, I will be well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus perceived in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched me? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around, and seeing the woman who had done this, but the woman was fearing and trembling and aware of what had happened to her and came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Isn't that interesting? And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Twelve years of deep distress. There's no way as a male can I get my mind around the depth of this, this suffering. Twelve years. There had to be groaning over misery. Living alone. Distant from families and friends. Could you imagine what in an Old Testament setting, still in Mark 5, what that would have been like for her? In vain... Physicians tried to help her. And it almost seems when you read this text that she's probably bankrupt. Separated probably from her friends and family. Imagine if she had any children, how this would have been. She feared that her spread of her impurity would infect her children and doubtlessly lived in isolation and solitude. But what a picture of a sinner she is. You say, well, that's not very nice. Well, listen. A sinner consciously is aware of their pollution. That's what we know. We know our sin polluted. <laughs> we know it. And we knew that it could pollute others, didn't we? See, a sinner's mourning over they're weak and dying condition. That's what we knew. We knew without Jesus we would die. We, we, we did not have strength to make it to eternity. We could not strengthen ourselves to save ourselves. A sinner often tries every remedy that man suggests and fails and fails and fails. 
a sinner becomes distraught in your soul with no ability to stop the flow of sin. Think about that. Before we're saved, we can't do anything but sin. (laughs) Right? We're by nature children of wrath. We're fallen. We're depraved. We can't stop sinning. There's nothing within us to stop it. See, Christians don't have to sin. We do, but we don't have to because we have the Spirit of God within us. But in her deepest and darkest hour, someone tells her Jesus is in town. Isn't this amazing? She hears of his calming of the sea the night before, knowing there was a terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee. Someone shares with her that Jesus healed that demonic that lived across the sea and lived in those tombs, and he's now in his right mind. She heard that story. Another comes running into town and tells her Jesus is here. Think about this. She finds him engulfed in a crowd that's listening for his voice. And she's persuaded that he has the very fountain of life she needs. In faith, because that's what happens here, in this God-given faith, she believes that if she can just touch the hem of his robe, she will receive the healing from the one full of love and power. She brings no gifts. She's completely empty-handed. Isn't that amazing? She's got no pigeons. She's got no doves. She's got no money. She comes completely empty-handed, trying to get to Jesus. She has nothing to offer but her disease. Isn't that interesting? That's all we had, right? You didn't bring your will because it was corrupted. You didn't bring your good works because those were filthy rags. What'd you bring to the table? You brought your sin. That's all she brings is her disease. Here, pushing her way through the crowd, she's unclean. She knows as this attempt fails, it could be her life because she's got to get through a crowd. And she knows as she touches anyone, they're unclean as well. This could be her death sentence. They could stone her right there if this does not work. But she's got faith. And it's not her faith. It's a God-given faith. And you'll see this in her. There's no prayer recorded. She doesn't walk an aisle here. She's simply drawn to Jesus and places her faith in the one who has the fountain of life. And that faith grants grants her strength and gives her hope to push on towards Jesus. This God-given faith results in the removal of a hidden plague in her life for years. Immediately, she knows she's clean. Boy, that's salvation, isn't it? When you get saved, you know your sins are forgiven. It is the greatest freeing feeling you've ever experienced. That's why we keep singing about it and talking about it. And here, sin met grace, and grace conquered sin. And she's free. See, sin had no chance. Sin had no strength. Sin had no hold on death when it comes against Jesus. See, there's no sin hidden or revealed that can't be conquered. 
by the life-giving flow of Jesus. She met the great physician. And she was pardoned, what, that evening? Seven days later? Oh, no. Thank you. Immediately. She's pardoned immediately. Can you imagine her joy as she presents her offering of two maybe white turtle doves to the Lord that day? Maybe, maybe while she's there, she runs into Jarius. Because if you follow the story down, Jairus' daughter was dying. And by the time he got to Jesus, he said, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus heals her daughter. And maybe they ran into each other at temple. Could you imagine if Jairus and her and the daughter are walking along the Sea of Galilee and they meet the once demonic man who's now a missionary? Can you imagine the conversation of this faith-gripped trio who had met Jesus and one day their life were changed forever and they're completely cleansed? And somewhere in their group, there's a dad that's just overwhelmed to have his daughter back. Maybe, maybe they sang Psalms 103 together by the Sea of Galilee. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, forget none of his benefits, who pardons all my iniquities, who heals all my diseases, who redeemed your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He has made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel, and that's what she was. Maybe she's saying that. Could you imagine that worship service on the shores of Galilee? The prophets prophesied of a Jesus who would come and wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion in Isaiah 4. Zechariah 13.1 says, In the day of a fountain there will be opened up for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for their sin and for their impurities he will wash away. And certainly those are great eschatological, eschatological verses that point forward. But listen, Doubtlessly, they could say, thank you, God, for this unspeakable gift. She is, Leviticus 15, cleansed. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Were there not smart enough people who knew the Old Testament, sat there and watched what God did? Instead, their hard hearts just wanted to kill him. Well, the last... um, point is, you just close your Bibles and let me quit here, is in back in 15, Leviticus 15, 31 through 33, is this warning of the need of purity to be in the presence of God. In the Old Testament, God wanted you to come clean before him. And so, no commandment in God's law was trivial, and therefore, here's a summary here given at the end of this text, and it's a warning, particularly in verse 31, And it taught the nation that all of their worship in the tabernacle must be offered not outwardly, but inwardly. (laughs) See, he's trying to help them understand that you get defiled by what comes in and you need to be cleansed of that. 
In order to have a relationship with the holy God, you need to be purified. And of course, all of their sacrifices were temporary, but it was leading to that one that we just talked about who can purify a person for eternity. See, God desires His people to to know consciously that they have been cleansed. Do you know that? Do you believe that? That God has cleansed you? It's not something we abuse. We don't continue in sin that grace may abound, Romans 6, 1, because that shows probably that you're not in the faith. But can you get your mind around it for a moment that I never, ever in the rest of eternity ever have to use the words unclean, unclean, spiritually speaking? Because Jesus has made us cleansed. He's made us pure for all of eternity. Last verse, Hebrews chapter 12, 28 through 29. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by way by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so now we're able to come with great reverence and awe because we can walk into the presence of God anytime cleansed. He's right there living in you. And here's proof. If you're not cleansed, he would never put his spirit within you. And so religions and Christianity groups that teach loss of salvation, teach filling and unfilling of the Holy Spirit, don't understand the cleansing nature of our almighty God. Because if the spirit is not there, you could be I'm impure again. And that makes God a liar. He come to him with reverence and awe. We are pure before our Lord. Father, we thank you for this tonight. We thank you that you love us and you've done so much for us, Lord. This very difficult passage speaks of such impurities that most normal people would not talk about these things publicly. But here you and your law want your people in the nation of Israel to know this and deal with it because you want them to realize that secret sin would cause them to not have a relationship with you. And you wanted a relationship with them. You wanted them to come into your tabernacle clean so you could reconcile them and have a relationship with them and live among them. And all this was pointing to something greater, to the one who would in a moment purify us, Lord. Not this evening, and not in seven days, and not in ten days, but right now. And so, Lord, all of us who have experienced salvation instantly became pure and clean. Not for the day, not for the week, but for eternity. So, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we look forward to meeting women like this gal in Mark 5. Jairus and his daughter, the demonic and all of the other saints that have a God-given faith to believe in Jesus alone and brought nothing to receive it but their own sin. And so, Lord, that'll be a large group of us up there. Our voices will sing and praise and worship you for all of eternity because you made us pure. I praise you for this, Lord. Thank you for those who are here tonight. So glad to be together to worship, to teach your word, Lord. Bless them. Give them sweet rest tonight, Lord. 
Let us chase you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.